Hi, this is Georgina Terry. Welcome to another episode of Tea Chatter. Today we're going to take a little bit of a departure from our usual topics, which deal with bicycles, people in the industry, tips, techniques, that kind of thing. And we're going to talk about birds. And I chose this topic of conservation because so many of you have been so generous about your purchase of our organic teas, conservation socks, water bottles, all products designed to benefit Audubon New York and the Vermont Center for Eco-Studies. So I thought you might like to meet the women behind all these projects. Today I'm going to talk to three conservation biologists about what they're doing to preserve birds and what they're finding out about the environment as a result of their studies. Roz Renfrew is one. She works for the Vermont Center for Eco-Studies in Vermont and has done some fascinating studies of bobolinks, their wintering ecology, and the effects of pesticides on bobolinks. We also have Julian Liner here today. Julian is the Director of Bird Conservation with Audubon New York, and we'll be talking about Audubon's grassland conservation plan here in New York State. And finally, Carolyn Spillman, who is uh, spending time out on Long Island, also a conservation biologist with Audubon New York, with Audubon's Coastal Bird Conservation Program. And Carolyn is trying to make life easier for piping plovers and least terns, birds who share a lot of habitat with human beings, popular habitat like beaches. Uh, it can make life tough on a bird doing that, and Carolyn's doing her best to make sure that we take good care of those birds. So I hope you enjoy this interview. It's one of the nicest that I've ever done. I learned a lot from it, and I think you'll walk away from it thinking, you know what, my money was well spent. I sure did. So here we go. Enjoy. Well, hello, everybody. Thanks so much for coming. We have Roz Renfrew here from the Vermont Center for Eco-Studies, Julian Liner and Carolyn Spillman, both with Audubon New York. And I really want to thank you guys because I know you have an awful lot to do, and it's asking a lot of you to take uh, an hour or so away from your adventures in the field or on the computer to be here, especially on such a nice day. So thank you very much. No problem. You're welcome. I have kind of a strange question for each one of you, but it always occurs to me, why birds? How, how did you end up doing this? I think of Roz and I think of bobolinks. I think of Julian and I think of grassland birds in general. Carolyn, I associate with the piping plover. How did you, how did you happen to be here right now doing this? Did a, a bird just speak to you one day and you thought, that's it, I've got to go in this direction? Tell me a little bit about that. Any one of you can start. I'll start. This is Carolyn. Um, with the piping plover in particular, my interest has always been in the effects of human activities and changes to the landscape on wildlife populations, in particular birds. That's always kind of been my interest in wildlife and why I got into bird studies um, in particular. And with the piping plover, the you know the impetus behind the Long Island Bird Conservation Program here, which is just next week only one year old, um, was that the piping plover faces a large number of threats here on Long Island and up and down the Atlantic coast um, in general with development, loss of habitats, um, and human activities on beaches. It's a bird that we share a likeness for the beach with. So we're competing with the bird for use of these beaches. And so there's a lot of problems to address with that. Um, and that's work that really interests me are the, the conflicts between 
humans and wildlife. And here we have the endangered plover trying to breed and um, increase population numbers on Long Island. Is, has that been successful? Are population numbers increasing? Yeah, um, monitoring and protective efforts began back in the late 80s when the species was listed um, as protected under the Endangered Species Act. And last year, we had our highest number of breeding plovers, over 460 pairs on Long Island. So yeah, so it's protective efforts are helping the plovers um, come and find suitable habitat um, here on Long Island. However, we're not seeing that same trend with productivity, so number of chicks that are fledged successfully. So while we have the breeding pairs that are being able to um, to nest here, we're not seeing the success that we want to to reach uh, population goals. Let's come back to that uh, in a second when we get into to some of the work you guys are doing in a little bit more detail and just keep going around the table and finding out um, why that bird, <laughs> that kind of thing. Julian, Roz, either one of you want to? Well, I'll, I'll follow up with um, what Carolyn was saying where it's sort of a always stemmed from a concern about um, human impacts on, on wildlife or on the planet in general. And um, I was just, I thought <clears throat> when you asked that question, I, I was reminded I was going through some old stuff the other day. And I found these poems I wrote when I was in sixth grade. Oh, how neat. And, and, they, were, and they were, I was an intense kid. They were really <laughs> um, intense <laughs> about, about, um, you know, human impacts and industry and having, you know, poisoning the waters and all this kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and you're, you're asking about how we came to, to work with birds. Um, I think I always had that concern. And um, I think birds gave me this link to sort of channel that, that passion and concern into something that um, I, I could actually enjoy doing. And um, when I, I, I really didn't get into birds until college when I took an ornithology class and um, it was field ornithology where you get to learn all the bird ID and the songs and I was just so blown away that I could I could just just using my ears could you know figure out everything that was around me in the bird world and um, that really turned me on to it so I think it was a way to sort of link that passion for human activity um, impacts on the environment um, with with just watching birds which I just love to do um, so it, it made environmental causes um, a fun thing <laughs> for me. Yeah, when you talk about bird song, boy, the bobolink's got to be at the top of the heap when it comes to that. <laughs> yeah, there's there's something else. Uh, you, you have to hear it to believe it. Yeah, and yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. The way it's always described is it sounds like R2D2 from Star Wars, and it it really does. Um, I think what I'll do on our website is people are listening to this podcast. If they also refer to our website, I'll have some links back to. Cornell's All About Birds site, and they can mm -hmm. actually go and see these birds and listen to them there, which might mm -hmm. be helpful. How yeah, about you, Jillian? Um, yeah, I think my I I think my interest in birds. I mean, my I had an initial interest in the natural world and getting out and learning about it, and I had the fortunate experience to um, do an internship with Pete and I with the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation working with bald eagles, which happened mm. to be a pretty um, attractive yet intimidating, exciting uh, bird to work on. 
And so that was one of my first, I'm like Roz, I didn't start birding until college. And it was really that experience of getting out there and surveying. And I was able to actually um, get really close to the bald eagles through some trapping and banding efforts. And that just, to me, that made everything um, very real um, in terms of what I was learning in school, connecting it with this interest in, in the natural world and wanting to get closer to it and um, connecting that with conservation issues and needs. And um, yeah, that fueled it for me. I think birds happen to be a group of um, critters that are really accessible. So um, it's an easy way to, you can learn about them. It can be overwhelming at times with the number of birds and issues that surround them, but they're out there, they're in our backyards. Um, they're everywhere we go. There's different species everywhere we go. And so um, it just, again, makes it accessible. And they are an indicator of a lot of other things that are going on in the environment. So when it comes to pursuing conservation issues, um, oftentimes it's not hard to find the link between them and the other components of our natural systems. And so they can tell us about things that are going on, and um, we can watch them and focus on them, but we know that by doing that, we're learning more and we're taking care of, of, of other things. So, yeah, the bald eagle kind of stole my heart, and I, <laughs> I continued going on with uh, raptor work, and obviously now I've morphed into a much smaller uh, set of birds, <laughs> but um, they, they did it for me. I mean, that was just a really incredible experience. And a great place to be doing it, too, in New York, where we were so instrumental in, in hacking that bird, I think, for the first time at Montezuma. Yeah, that was, and I think that the timing of that is pretty gratifying. I don't think in the conservation world we always have such great success stories, but um, the timing of my involvement in the bald eagle, which at that point, it was fairly early on in New York's reintroduction efforts, um, but early enough uh, that we weren't quite sure what was going on. And now, of course, I mean, they've been recently downlisted from the federal uh, endangered threatened list, and uh, they're just doing phenomenally, so it's great. Yeah, it's exciting when you see a success like that, for sure. Can you all tell me in a little bit more detail exactly what your your research or or your focus is at this time? I mean, we've got, between the three of you, some really exciting work going on. Um, maybe start with you, Rise. I know you're focused on the bobolink and and the issues of pesticides. I guess we should say that the bobolink is uh, is a, one of the neotropical migrants. They spend their winters down in South America, around Bolivia and that area, and then they come back up to the United States in the summer to breed. And your work is interesting because it, it focuses a lot on what's going on down in South America. It's easy for us to see what happens here and say, okay, everything's rosy or it's not so rosy. But at the other end of the spectrum, there are very important things going on. Maybe if you could address that. Sure. Yeah, it's it's common that with these migratory species, um, we've been focusing on you know, protecting habitat here in the north where they breed. And um, only, you know, in the last decade or two have really started looking at uh, their wintering grounds and seeing if there are potential threats to populations there. Um, and that's really picked up in, in the um, research world 
conservation world, and it's it's pretty much the norm now to be thinking more holistically about the lives of these birds and um, what impacts they might be facing or threats they might be facing um, on at all stages, you know, all, all parts of their life cycle throughout the year. So um, when I was studying bobolinks um, in grad school out in Wisconsin, I found out that really we had no idea what happens to them the other nine months of the year when they're not here breeding. And I became interested in trying to find out where they were and what might be affecting them. And um, we really didn't even have a good a good grasp on exactly where they spent the winter. Um, we had a general gist and you'd look at these maps of their wintering range and they were varied depending on which source you went to and they were very huge. They showed them in you know half of South America <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it really needed to be narrowed down and, and figured out what was really going on down there. So that so I took that on because nobody else had and it seemed like an interesting um, topic to pursue and uh, allowed me to travel and um, I'm, I'm finding some interesting things. One is that, um, like other blackbirds, bobolinks flock in the winter, and um, they flock in in uh, pretty large roosts uh, when they're feeding in South America. And this is in they occur in Bolivia and a little bit in Paraguay and in northern Argentina. How and, how large is a roost? Well, it it really varies. You could find a roost that's just uh, a few hundred or a few thousand birds. Um, I found roosts that were up to about 100,000 birds. So wow. um, they really can And what percentage of the global population is that? <laughs> oh, I don't know, um, because we don't know what the global population is. Um, oh, really? Well, there have been some estimates thrown out, but nobody's really sure. Um, some people think it's around 13 million, mm -hmm. which sounds like a lot, but it's about half of what there used to be. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it, it's still not a huge proportion of that population, um, but if you think of bobolinks on their wintering grounds in South America as occurring in these, you know, sort of pockets of concentrated area, you know, concentrations, um, you, you tend to wonder, well, you know, if just a few of these were knocked out or, or affected um, dramatically, how would that affect the entire population as a whole, and is that contributing to the decline that we've been seeing in bobolink popula populations? And that's a really hard question to tackle with a species like bobolinks that is so mobile in the winter. I mean, they're in these big flocks, but they don't just stay there. They move around quite a bit is what we're finding. Mm -hmm. um, so we found these huge huge flocks, these huge concentrations of bobolinks. It's really the first time that's that's been um, been found. And uh, so we started looking at what are the potential threats facing them in the wintering grounds. And the thing about bobolinks is for a long time they've been known as, their nickname was the rice bird, and they've been known to feed in, in rice. In fact, they used to feed in rice in North America when it was grown um, down in the southeastern portion of the country. This was 100, 150 years ago. Uh, and they were killed in, you know, by the thousands and sometimes tens of thousands um, because they were a pest in the rice here. And they were actually served up. And then apparently they're, they're quite tasty. <laughs> all, all one mouthful of them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think they were called, I believe they were called butterbirds. Mm. So, um, so the same thing's going on in, in South America, except they're not, I don't think they're, they're um, killing the birds in mass quantities like they used to, 
used to. Um, but what is um, affecting the populations there potentially are, are pesticides that are used on the rice where they feed. And um, that's what I looked into specifically. Um, and I found that they, they are using pesticides there still that have been banned here. Monocrotophos? Uh, yeah, monocrotophos is the main problem pesticide. Um, it's been banned in some countries, but it's still being used in others where the bobolinks occur. And it's actually one of the reasons it was banned in countries um, and was never registered here was because it's highly toxic to birds. So it's, it's particularly a problem to birds. And um, I found that they are being exposed at, at lethal levels. Um, it's hard to know. Um, the real effects because some of the effects can be sort of sublethal. Um, the, the pesticide causes nerve damage and it means that the birds may not be able to fly well or function properly or migrate um, and it's very hard to sort of to know exactly how many birds that's affecting um, but we know that it's an issue. So. Um, just I want to ask Caroline a question but I want to ask you one quick question first going back to the monocrotophos. I think I heard you say in a lecture last year that it's still being manufactured by 81 different factories around the world. Uh, 31. 31. 31. Okay, that's yeah, a lot better. 31 companies are manufacturing it. Um, the bulk of them are in China, but there's actually still one in Texas that produces it. Okay, I didn't want to hear that, but you said it. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Well, we'll let people draw their own conclusions about that. Mm -hmm. Let me um, let me just ask Carolyn too now. Tell us a little bit about your piping plover activities. I know stewardship is a big word in your vocabulary. Stewardship and it seems to affect all of us in some sort of way. I mean, what Roz is doing, what Julian's doing, what you're doing, we're all relying on other people to do the right thing. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing in Long Island. Yeah, and stewardship for me here with the piping plover is multifaceted. Um, there's the obvious activities that have been in place for many years um, here on Long Island and along the Atlantic coast involving habitat protection. Um, during the breeding season, we fence off uh, traditional nesting areas for the piping plover, also uh, the least tern, um, which is also a, a protected species. Um, those are the two major species that we focus on here. Um, anyway, the common stewardship activities include, include fencing off the nesting areas, um, and it's, it's what's called symbolic fencing. So it's a series of posts with a flagged string. Can I interrupt and ask you one question? Is this happening on private property or public, both? That's a good question, actually. Um, according to the Endangered Species Act, it's the landowner's responsibility to ensure that any um, piping plover or turn pairs, any endangered species on the property is protected um, and that productivity is ensured to the best of the landowner's ability. So this is happening on both. Um, of course, on private property, we have more of a battle Yeah. <laughs> getting <laughs> landowners to agree to the measures or to not violate the measures. We're, of course, on Long Island here. Um, I like to say, you know, it's endangered species management where money is no issue. We'll get calls about the string fencing and say, well, what's the fine if I go take it down for a beach party? You know, people aren't concerned with the violation that is occurring, but, you know, okay, well, how much will it cost? 
250? Mm-hmm. All right, I have it. You uh, know? So yeah. it is frustrating. But, you're, yes, it does occur on, you know, we have county parks here, we have state parks, we have state-owned land. Um, towns have endangered species programs. Um, so it's, you know, it's a collaborative effort. Um, and other than the, the fencing and the exclosures that we put up, some of the conservation activities that I'm involved with are addressing some of the threats to the birds. And a lot of my work lately has been working with um, a committee to address the issue of predators, in particular feral cats are a big one. You know, and that the, um, you know, feral cats colonies being fed and maintained in areas where these endangered ground nesting birds breed is a direct conflict. So it's something that we're hoping to change attitudes about, and it's a huge problem um, across Long Island. There are many advocacy groups that do what are called trap, neuter, return. They, they trap the cats, they fix them, and they return them in an effort to reduce the population. However, there is no instance of that drawing the population, population to zero. Um, because cats are so prevalent here, dumping and abandonment is very common. Um, there are over half a million cats on Long Island. We're advocating and trying to work with landowners to relocate cats where they are in direct conflict um, on public lands with uh, beach nesting birds. Is, is that one of the main reasons? I mean, you talked about um, the population of piping clover adults on the increase, but the number of chicks fledging successfully, not so. Is that one of the main reasons, or are there other ones as well? Right. Among other threats, predation um, is the biggest threat to um, clovers. Uh, it's adults, chicks, eggs that are being predated. Um, and feral cats are the one thing where there's a human element involved. Um, other common predators include fox, um, raccoon to some extent, um, gulls, and crows will even depredate eggs. So there are predators here, but that's the one where we have the, the human element that we can try to address and change some behavior. That's that's got to be tough working with human beings. I think it would be a lot easier just to work with the birds, but <laughs> when you're working with people, you get an awful lot of variables in there. Do you think people are becoming more sensitive? Or are they more receptive? Do they appreciate what you're trying to do? That's very hard to gauge at this point for me. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I've only been here a year. The program with Audubon, the bird conservation program here on Long Island with Audubon, New York, is just about to turn one year old this month, and um, there are many conservation organizations and partners that have been doing this for years um, here on Long Island before me, and it's hard to gauge. We have the um, the bumper stickers here locally that say, piping clover tastes like chicken. Um, it's hard to change public attitude about conservation efforts in their backyard when they might have to walk around string fencing to get to the beach. Very difficult, but I'm that's one of our goals is through education and positive messages and debunking some of these myths about our management activities that we can change public attitudes. And one of my projects this summer will entail um, assessing public attitude towards the piping plover and management um, methods to protect the plover through um, a survey that we're hoping to implement on the beaches this summer between Memorial Day and Labor Day. People shouldn't think of it's my right to do what I want on my property. People should think, yes, it's my right, but is it the right choice necessarily? 
think if you can get people thinking more about choices instead of what their God-given rights are, yeah. sometimes that that helps a little bit. And and that's the theme I've been utilizing. You know, you know, we have this land and we have this these beautiful expansive beaches, and we should be honored to protect an endangered species. I mean, with the recent delisting of the bald eagle, for example, um, that was mentioned, we didn't have much to do with that here on Long Island. But somebody somewhere had to change their attitude and their behavior to make that happen. And, you know, aren't we glad that that happened? Um, with the piping plover, it's just, an you know, a matter of turning heads towards that view, that here's something that we can directly be a part of, and we should want to protect the plover yeah. because that means we have this wonderful habitat here. That That's a great way to do it because then it's a positive win-win situation for everybody, and nobody feels like they're being pushed into a corner and they have to become all defensive about it. I hope that I hope that works. Julian, how about you? I know you're in the process of doing a lot with IBAs here and grasslands and you you see all sorts of things I'm sure when it comes to the future of grasslands here in New York State. Um yeah, the grassland initiative um in New York State is also, I mean, relatively new, not as new as the beach nesting bird program that Audubon New York has, but it was a few years ago um, we launched this initiative in an attempt to try to address some of the, the needs of grassland birds, which if you look at the suite of grassland birds in New York State, I mean, they, there's about 10, um, maybe 12 species in it, and they range from birds like the northern harrier, which is a um, a relatively lean raptor, but big and bigger bird in terms of um, the bird world, down to a handful of small um, sparrow-type birds like the Henso sparrow and the grassland sparrow, and also Roz's uh, bobolink um, is one of our grassland birds. And when you look at their population trends in New York State, all of these bird species have been declining. There's some surveys that have been taking place that are actually volunteer surveys. So um, the Breeding Bird Survey is one. It's um, a national effort to monitor breeding birds. And if you look at the trends since, say, the 1960s, all of these grassland birds have been declining. Some of them just, I mean, tremendously almost blinking out of the state. The Henslow Sparrow is a bird that um, we only have a few locations where there's um, substantial populations left, and we wonder if we're going to be able to hang on to them. And grassland birds, as a conservation focus, um, spark some dialogue in that a lot of people say, well, how much of New York State ha was a grassland, say, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago? And if we just let things go naturally, <laughs> would we really have any grasslands? And so should we be focused on them? And um, our approach when it comes to grasslands, or our thinking, um, is that many of these species, their core populations are out in the Midwest, and their habitat has been permanently converted to monocultures of various crops that will never support their um, what they once did. And so we feel that we have a responsibility in New York State to, since we have manageable populations of them to actually keep some of their their habitat um, maintained and sustained. And interest, when you look at what's causing the declines in New York State, 
it is a result of abandoning um, abandonment of farmlands changes in farming practices. There is a changing a change of concentrating. Um, if you do have if you farm with um, you know, you have cattle or cows, you concentrate them in certain areas and then plant corn and other feed and intensively um, cut and harvest that to feed the more confined animals rather than letting them uh, graze across larger areas. So we have that, changes in practices, the abandonment, and then we also have development. And so those factors are all um, influencing the landscape and the grassland initiative is trying to identify areas where we should focus because we can't create habitat for all birds everywhere, but identify the areas in the state that we want to and we think are the most important places to maintain and we will have the highest um, success in maintaining grassland birds. And right now many of those lands are private lands in New York State and they are farmed or owned um, by larger landowners who are interested in farming them. So a main uh, conservation strategy for this program is working with private landowners to manage their land um, in a way that maintains these birds. And a lot of um, the, that effort is connected to uh, federal, um, federal uh, funding sources that help supplement farmers who, if they take a hit um, in terms of their uh, you know, financial gain, they're mm -hmm. changing their management practice, the federal government actually will supplement them to, to manage it in a way that sustains the birds. So that's really the, the program is um, yeah, identifying these focus areas. There is a research component to it to better understand what these birds need, because even though they're all grassland birds, we lump them into this group, they're pretty specific about what they like within that general ca habitat category. and um, and. So researching what they need and then working with private landowners and through some of these federal funding sources to help uh, manage areas for them. That's, uh, that's encouraging and hopefully that's going to help the grasslands here. I think sometimes it's hard for people to appreciate grassland because it doesn't have the romantic aspect that, say, the Adirondacks do, or the seashore or does. You towers, know, it's just yeah. a field. <laughs> our coast and our high alpine areas. I know. Actually, that's what's. I mean, New York is incredible that way. I mean, it is a really large state, but we yeah. have some really phenomenal diverse habitats. We do. Roz, it's got to be a little bit more difficult for you because we've been talking. Julian and Carolyn are mentioning things that are being done here in the states, and we're working with the federal government and citizens. But you're working in a foreign country. Mm -hmm. How how do you get around this pesticide issue in South America? What do you do? That's still a question that we're battling with, um, but making some headway on. Um, we we actually met with some government officials. I brought in. Um, the American Bird Conservancy into the project because they worked a lot on, on um, pesticides and birds, issues around that. And, um, and they sent someone down and we all met with a bunch of different government agencies. Um, we had a, a, a good friend who had a lot of connections, which is always helpful there. Um, you definitely need to work with locals. Um, the last thing you want is, is for them to perceive you as, you know, the North America coming and telling them, North American coming and telling them what to do. Right. Um, and, and so it is, it is very, you know, you have to be careful and diplomatic and, and, um, and really it has to be something they want to do. And um, all we can do is present 
what we know and see if they're interested in, in acting on it. And um, to our delight, they were. Um, they were really receptive and, um, you know, interested in using um, alternative management strategies for, um, for dealing with uh, pests and rice. And that's as far as we've gotten so far is just kind of establishing contacts, um, agreeing that we both want the same things, and um, we have to see where it goes from there. It's sort of out of my hands at this point, although mm -hmm. maybe I'll get back into it and deal with that human side of things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love staying on the bird side because it's just much simpler. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, uh, you know, the next step is, okay, well, how, how do we do this? And we discussed various ways, and um, there's international treaties that you have to worry about, um, agreements, sort of free trade type agreements that you get into. So it becomes this bigger policy issue. Um, but, you know, dealing with pesticides in particular, a lot of times what happens is when one country acts, the others tend to follow. And actually, it's interesting that the U.S. is in a particularly – um, powerful position in that way, not with monocrotophos in particular, um, because it was just never registered here to begin with. But when we when we ban a pesticide, um, the rest of the world watches and, and oftentimes follows. Um, there are certain um, reports that kick in once a pesticide is banned in this country, um, and the other countries follow suit and so we you know we don't realize what an impact we can have by taking actions here um, how that can affect you know the rest of the world sometimes so mm -hmm. um, unfortunately it would almost have been better if monocrotophos was actually used here briefly and then banned because that would have kicked in this whole process and would have been made it more likely that other countries wouldn't have allowed it to begin with or would have banned it themselves one question I have for you in the article that was in the New York Times recently, it mentioned that um, when you've been testing uh, for pesticide exposure and bobolinks, you found that about half the birds you tested had uh, drastically reduced levels of cholinesterase. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't go so far as to say, gee, I hope not, but I'll ask you this anyway, that half the population of the birds in South America, the bobolinks in South America, have this issue, would you or would you? No, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I wouldn't go that far because not all of the bobolinks presumably are feeding in rice in South America, and not all of them, when they are feeding in rice, are feeding in rice that's been treated with monocrotophos. For example, in Argentina, the pesticide has been banned. Um, it was banned um, several years ago, about 10 years ago or more now, um, when they found uh, Swainson tox, which is it's another um, migrant species, they breed in the West and they migrate down to South America, um, they were killed, they found die-offs in the thousands and estimate that there were tens of thousands that were killed um, due to monocrotophos down in Argentina. They were eating grasshoppers um, oh. that had been, they had been using on sunflower and other crops um, to control the grasshoppers and the Swainson's hawks um, were gathering and feeding on these grasshoppers and they found this uh, a pile of them um, oh. in a few different instances. So, um, so Argentina banned the pesticide after that, um, and um, and actually Australia followed suit and banned it as well. Oh, great. Um, but um, but Bolivia did not, and, and Brazil did not, and you know so there's there's other, I believe Paraguay did not. So 
you know, there are other countries that where, um, where the bobolink either winters or passes through. And, you know, I keep talking about bobolinks, but I just want to say that um, I think um, Jillian was speaking of this, or maybe it was Carolyn, but that birds can be, um, you know, sort of a, a sentinel of, of, um, of environmental problems. And, uh, and that's a lot of the reasons why some of us study these birds is because they indicate something going on with the environment. And, and so I, I'm talking about bobolinks, but there's really an entire ecosystem, and a suite of birds and other species, um, other taxa that are affected by the pesticides. So um, I, I don't want you to think that bobolinks are my only concern, <laughs> although I'm totally in love with them. <laughs> I have another question for you all. This might be a little bit more on a personal level. I guess it's it's my feelings, and I, I think of myself in any of your positions, if I were any of the three of you doing the work you're doing. And I, I think I would get sometimes so frustrated um, knowing that the people just aren't, how to say it, behaving themselves. And, and this is why we have these issues. And I feel like I, I want to step away from my boundaries as a scientist where I have to be totally objective and rational and cool and just shake somebody and say, wake up. <laughs> you're, you're just messing everything up for everybody. Come to your senses and, and behave properly so we don't have these problems. Do, do you ever have those personal kind of frustrations? Are you able to keep an arm's length relationship with, with your, your topic? I don't know if we could avoid those feelings sometimes. <laughs> we're passionate about the things that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I always keep I always keep in mind that this is um, a long-term en endeavor, and it's going to take time. And I'm just like one small worker in this larger <laughs> overall mission. And um, it is true that, um, at least in my experience, doing this job, which I don't know, it's been six or seven years, has been that um, you it you often have to compromise to get a little bit of a, a success, um, but that is just such an enormous success. I mean, sometimes we just get exactly what we want, and we send the message, and the people are woken up, and change happens, but more often there, it requires a little bit of compromise, and then oftentimes we don't. It's just a battle, and we don't have the time and energy or finances to be able to win it, um, but again, it's any any little success means a lot, and it is it's a long term commitment. Mm -hmm. That's that's a good way to put it, and I can I can certainly see your point. Um, Rise, Julian, anything to add to that? Well, I I, I see it as not just um, you know an individual misbehaving, or as you said, but um, usually individuals are caught up in such a it's a complex issue when I when you talked about that it reminded me of just talking with farmers in Bolivia and um, it's it's frustrating to see what they're doing but it's completely understandable and um, and they're really caught up in, a, in, in bigger issues that have very little to do with their own personal values um, when you start talking to somebody they really end up oftentimes at least there um, having the same values as you they they don't want to kill the birds um, they're trying to put you know bread on the table right and um, and they're really caught up in, in a much larger issue so 
I often find that it's not the individual that frustrates me. In fact, connecting with those individuals and finding a common ground can be a really gratifying experience. Um, it's just that there's these larger issues going on with, you know, what's happening at the governmental level or mm -hmm. with corporations, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is somewhat relieving when you're talking to the individual, but then it's also, that also has its own frustrations in that it's so big, it's hard to know how to tackle it. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Last, let me ask you, you know, I've been asking all the questions here. Do do you want to ask each other any questions or make any comments? It's not unfortunately we're not sitting here facing each other around a round table. We're all on telephones, but uh, is is there anything you'd like to ask each other or to talk about? I was actually, you know, it's funny, you know, Jillian is helping out with um, you know, grassland birds and their breeding grounds and I'm working at the other end of of, of the spectrum on the wintering grounds, and I'm wondering, Jillian, if um, you feel like people um, think about what's going on the rest of the year, or if they're, you know, do they make that connection? Is that pretty common? Or are you finding that, um, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done in, in terms of getting people to think more globally when it comes to birds? It depends on, who, on the who's you're talking about. I mean, I think in terms of conservation efforts in New York State, um, not necessarily with grassland birds so much. I mean, our, at least with us, we've been pretty focused on, you know, the breeding grounds, but certainly for some of the other birds, actually, that Roz's group, um, her organization that she works with, they also work on the big nailed thrush and, um, and work both up in the breeding and the wintering grounds. And I think that's a species where um, we, along with others, have gotten more involved in committing to the needs of it um, during migration, in particular in its wintering grounds, and that has kind of permeated, um, you know, more broadly through the public understanding that. And um, I think it, with most birds, um, again, depending on the audience, the general public. Um, might not always think about the wintering grounds, but that message is certainly something that is being sent. And I think we often feel like, gosh, there's you know there's still so much work to be done here. Like when it comes to the grassland birds, certainly the landowners we're working with, they're not necessarily thinking about where where these birds go next and their needs in other areas. It's kind of in some ways could be seen as, you know, they're they're looking to make a living and. You know they're want they're wanting to help out and sort of that's where their their scope and focus is. But um, you know in general I think there's an increased awareness, um, although there's still a lot of work to be done in identifying ways that we up here um, kind of the the stewards of their their breeding grounds we need to think more and actually do more for migratory stopover and, and wintering. And I think, and I think, I think um, you know, having people, even if there were no problems aside from breeding ground issues, even if, um, you know, once they left here um, up until the time they returned, everything was perfect and, and there were no threats to deal with, I think just the marvel and the miracle of of what they do can kind of lend to the mystique of these birds and their, the wonder um, about, you know, how amazing these birds are and how lucky we are to have them. Um, to watch, you know, and, and to actually be staying in one place for three months out of the year for us to watch and observe. Um, so I, I think there can be ways to to weave that story together holistically when we talk to people 
um, that that just adds to hopefully to their appreciation of what's around us. I think it's important to note, actually. I'll just I'll just chime in um, that this weekend is um, a lot of organizations will be celebrating International Migratory Bird Day, and you know if we remember, it was you know only in the 70s when you know Earth Day was born, and that's just become a regular not a holiday, but a recognition. It's widely known and widely spread. And, you know, within time, you know, this I saw in my local paper um, this week under, you know, events and short articles and things, events going on this weekend for International Migratory Bird Day. And, you know, maybe it's only a matter of time before we start, you know, drawing that connection and, you know, it becomes a recognized phenomena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is amazing to think the birds are up here for such a short amount of time of their entire, you know, of their annual <laughs> journey. It is. It always amazes me when I see a bobolink first arrive. I look at that bird and think, my God, you flew how many miles just to get here? You know, and that, it's just, it almost brings tears to my eyes. And then I realize there are a lot of birds doing that. The bobolink yeah. is only one. But, and looking globally, too, look at the red knot. I mean, there's a bird that's getting hammered everywhere we're trying to do our best i guess but, but yeah it spends most of its life in migration <laughs> yeah yeah and and none of it seems to be working out very well for it on any of the fronts which is very very sad but well i think we've certainly covered a lot of ground and i i really hope that our customers walk away from this saying yep i'm putting my money in the right place when when i look at some of these conservation products and, and purchase them i'm glad to see that these are the scientists who are putting this money to work, um, it's definitely well spent. And I want to thank you personally for all that you do. It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's just amazing opening up everybody's eyes to these miracles that are going on in front of us all the time uh, that we may not be thinking too much about. It's very, very special work, and, and I think we're in good hands with the three of you. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Uh, so... That was it, and once again, thanks so much for spending the time to come here. I really appreciate it, and best of luck to you with your work in the future. Thanks, Georgina. Thanks for thank supporting you. the work. Oh, you're yeah. welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. It was good you're welcome.